Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson skulle jag så bra som mig. Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores! Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Karlsson Fans. The longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by a guy who's a little worried we're going to have to lean a little bit more heavily on William Carlson to carry our brand if Eric can't turn it around next year. I'm your host, Dylan Dubrovsky, and we've got a really special show for you today because I'm lying. I'm not actually your host. I'm just doing an intro, and then I'm going to be cutting over to the great Ben Burnett, who's got another 32 Beats beat writer interview for you, this time with David Schoen about the Vegas Golden Knights. I'll be honest, I haven't listened to it, but I talked to Ben. He said it was really good, and I can't wait to hear it because I talked to David last year, and it was such a fascinating interview about the Knights. They've got a lot of intriguing things going on. Flurry is out, Dadanov is in, Glass is out, Nolan Patrick is in, and I just can't wait to hear what the ramifications are of all of the changes in Vegas over the offseason. Of course, before we get to that, let me mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. Proudly so, Dauber has once again, like clockwork, released that awesome online guide that is available for you to download right now. So you got to go to DauberHockey.com, you download the guide, you get all the interesting write-ups, plus, of course, the projections that you can use to plan for your fantasy drafts, and they're updating all throughout the offseason, so check that all out at DauberHockey.com. Let me also mention that now is the time, if you like our podcast, jump on in, join our Patreon, because we've got a ton of perks for you, including entry into the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patreon Fantasy League. We'd love for you to get in if you haven't played before, and we've really spruced up our Kakupful.com website. So if you want more information about our awesome league, just go to kkupfl.com, Kakupful.com, for all the information there. But that's just one of the many perks. We've got patron casts that we run once a month, a special show just for the patrons. We're going to be recording one. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, the patron cast is tonight. So you should come join. Brian and I, it's a live show, but obviously the patrons have access to it after the fact, where we answer all of your questions. We've got a lot of fun questions. You know, a lot of people starting to ask about who are our sleepers and things like that for next season. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So there's that. For new patrons, I'm going to be running the first ever patron orientation. I think it's a new thing we're going to do at the end of every month to sort of say hello to all the new patrons. We'll all get on a Zoom call, have a chat, I'll answer some questions show you around our Discord server. Oh yeah, that's another perk of being a patron is you get to join our Discord server. So we've got a lot we're trying to throw at you for only the $5 a month US that we uh, charge. So check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron for all the information. But okay, with that, let's get to the content, okay? Because we've got, like I said, Ben Burnett interviewing David Schoen about the Vegas Golden Knights. Hope you like it. All right. Well, welcome back to the Keeping Carlson 32 Beat Writer Series. I am your host for a third time, I guess, in the last couple of weeks, Ben Burnett, usually hosting the Short Shifts podcast. Today, I am once again in the driver's seat of Keeping Carlson. And joining me today, David Shane, Golden Knights Beat Writer for the Las Vegas Review Journal. David, welcome to the show. Ah, good to have... Uh... Or, excuse good me. to be here. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to have for, you. I will. I'll say that part. Having me on. How about that? Let's go with that one. <laughs> Excellent, David. We are very excited to have you on. I'm very excited to talk uh, Las Vegas, a team who, um, when they came into the league, I found them so irritating for being so good right away, and <laughs> I didn't bet in bet in on them at all that year. But then I ended up. I lived uh, on the West Coast at that point, and I was able to stay up and watch hockey games really late. 
And they've quickly became my favorite team because they had such a fast and furious forecheck. And their identity has always been to be like, in my mind, one of the most entertaining teams in the league. I'd imagine it's very fun for you to cover the Knights. Yeah, they've always got something going on. Like if it's not a, you know, C-3PO gold helmet or, you know, a trade or room. Yeah, you know, they've definitely been exciting in their four years. They definitely not held back, been very aggressive uh, on the ice, off the ice and, and, you know, every which way they could. So, you know, certainly from the media aspect, it's it's been fun and exciting to uh, to be along for the ride and cover it. Well, let's talk about the most aggressive move they've made since the uh, since the season ended when they traded the reigning Vesna Trophy winner, Marc-Andre Fleury, for nothing, as far as I can tell. Um, were you shocked by that move? Well, I don't know that I was entirely shocked by just, you know, the move itself. I think maybe what I was shocked more about is the return and just their willingness and being so upfront about it. It was just cap space. Mm. It wasn't, you know, they got a minor league guy that I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. I apologize. Um, I, Mikhail Hakarainen, there I tried to pronounce it. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my finish is, you know, getting better. Um, but they just, they dumped the, the 7 million cap space. I mean, that, that's, it's almost entirely what it was. And I think, you know, really like as far as the surprise, like no, because the writing was on the wall all the way back to, you know, when they acquired Robin Leonard and then when he won the job that postseason, you know, in the bubble in Edmonton. And then when he signed that five-year contract almost immediately afterward, I mean, that, that signaled at that point that the Golden Knights found their heir apparent. And they had, and Kelly McCrimmon admitted this, you know, in the aftermath of, of the Marc-Andre Fleury trade, that they had always, you know, been looking for the next goalie, that they were, you know, banking on getting a handful of years or a few years, you know, of good goaltending for Marc-Andre Fleury, but they were always looking ahead and trying to figure out who was going to be next. And once Robin Leonard was locked into that spot, there was no way that they were going to continue you know, to allocate $12 million in salary cap space to the goaltending position, as much as Bill Foley and the sentimental, you know, you know, feelings that he had and the emotional attachment that he had to Marc-Andre Fleury, the front office made it very clear that they just could not make the salary cap work, you know, this year. So I think it was, I think it was an inevitable. Mm-hmm. I, I think the way that it all happened and the return and the reaction and sort of the blowback, maybe that's where, you know, a little, a little bit of the surprise would come in. Yeah. And I think the, the Bill Foley comment, I think it was in February uh, where he said he would have had a big problem with, with trading flurry. I, uh, I thought that I thought he was inevitably gone last off season. And then when he wasn't, I was like, well, uh, I'm assuming that he's still on the chopping block. Then he goes on that crazy run, wins the Vesna first time in his career. And then the owner comes out and says that he'd have a big problem with it. Do you think that there's any sort of drama there uh, as a result of the trade? I'd have to imagine the owner is on board for a trade that big. Yeah. I mean, if you're saying drama in terms of like the owner, not, not approving or whatever, no, because I had a conversation with, with Bill Foley after the trade and, and, you know, we talked and he, he really laid it out for me that the front office made it clear to him this is the way it's just going to have to be going forward. That it was they just needed the salary cap space. They didn't have the flexibility to do any of the other things that they wanted and needed to do. It was just it was just a necessary move 
for the for the organization to go forward. So in that respect, you know, drama, no. But I think where the drama is, you know, is just kind of how it happened. Everything with, you know, Mark Andre Fleury's agent and Alan Walsh, the sort of, mm-hmm. you know, court of public opinion and and everybody running with this idea that Mark Andre Fleury found out about it on Twitter and the night mistreated him. Um, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So, so internally, I don't think there's any conflict in terms of, you know, trading Marc-Andre Fleury and some people not being on board, but certainly there was a lot of pushback from fans and, you know, around the team and and things like that. And I feel like, you know, to that extent, maybe the Knights in the, in the front office underestimated that. And, and really, and, and, and we can talk about this. I'd love to talk about this even further is, I, I mean, I, I just feel like both sides really are kind of at fault for for the way that it ended and, and sort of how acrimonious it was. And so I, I think I, for me, I, I want to actually s- switch over to Robin Lehner now, uh, who, like you said, brought in to be the guy in Vegas. It seemed like they were handing the reins over to him last offseason. And then he kind of underperforms relative to the extremely high standard he set for himself the previous two years and Marc-Andre Fleury kind of uh, has a rejuvenation season. And when you look at the full season stats, Lehner wasn't bad, but no one really expected him to get outplayed by Fleury. Then he battles concussion issues, which I think could go to explain some of the lackluster performance, but I guess, do you expect him to be the workhorse in Vegas now with uh, Laurent Brossois in the picture, or is there a reason to be worried about him after the underwhelming season? I mean, I don't think there's reason to to worry about him, and I'd maybe push back a little on on using the word underwhelming. Sure. Um, I I think the concussion was was I can't I don't think you can understate the impact of the concussion. Let let's say mm-hmm. it like that. I don't think he was playing really well um, mm-hmm. to begin with, but he was solid. He was fine, and then and then that really you know took him out of the mix for a month plus, almost to a month and a half. And you know at that point, Mark Andre Fleury really seized the job and you know, sort of the locker room and even the coaching staff was, was behind that. And even, you know, by the end, Robin Leonard was, I mean, Robin Leonard was on, you know, Twitter pumping Marc-Andre Fleury's tires that mm-hmm. he should win the Vezina trophy, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But I do, I mean, as far as the workload and all that, yeah, I think maybe the days and, and, you know, the organization seems to be talking about this, the days of, you know, a guy starting 65 times or something like that are probably gone. Yeah. I don't think you can expect that, but I don't think Laurent Brossois was brought in to start 35 or 40 games either. You know, Robin Leonard is, is going to be the guy. This is what he's always wanted. This is the position that, you know, he sort of fought for the last couple of years and, and, you know, being so public, you know, with his mental health, you know, awareness and, you know, being a proponent of that and he's fought and, and had to fight against the stigma of, you know, and I don't mean, I don't mean this, you know, toward you, but you know, that he can't carry the load, that he can't be a number one. Mm-hmm. And he's wanted that opportunity. He wanted that opportunity in Chicago, had to split time with Corey Crawford. He wanted that opportunity. You know, he calls it Long Island. He always says Long Island. It's kind of funny, but um, you know, he split time there with, with Tomas Grice. So you know, the last couple of years he's played really well. He hasn't really had the chance to be a true number one, and he's going to get that this year. Are, are there concerns about that? I, the only concerns I would have are just can he stay healthy? I think throughout his career, 
you know, he's had a little bit of injury bugaboos. I'm not even getting into the mental health stuff. That's a, you know, th- that, that particular topic is something that I'm very sensitive to. It's, it's, you know, it's something that I go through myself. So I'm not even going to go there with Robin Leonard, but mm-hmm. I do think, you know, in terms of just, you know, can he stay healthy for 55 games, you know, when he's having to make, you know, sliding saves, you know, are the hamstrings going to hold up? Do the knees hold up? Do the groin, do the hips? You know, is he going to need a week here, two weeks there? Is he going to be out for a month? You know, those types of things. If he's able to carry the load and be healthy, I think the Knights are going to get enough goaltending to still, you know, win the Pacific Division and be a Stanley Cup contender. Uh, you're you're bang on on uh, I'm with you on a lot of that, especially talking about uh, Robin Lehner, basically, in my mind, a hero in the NHL for the way that he's gone out of his way to push back on a lot of the stigmas around um, around mental health issues. And um, I guess uh, but it is hard to, I guess, to see him do it because we're seeing a lot of pushback from front offices who, you know, I, I expected him to get that shot. In Chicago, I expected him to get that shot in Long Island, but it, I'm glad that I'm glad that now he appears to be on the precipice of and I just don't see a way where he doesn't get that shot this year. But I guess I've said that before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear. I mean, the Knights, the Knights have shown their belief in him and they're mm-hmm. they're committed to him. You know, they signed him to a to a contract. And, you know, the one thing that I think is interesting and, you know, maybe a little bit of the elephant in the room and he talked about this is you know his salary and and maybe even being a little bit underpaid you know compared to you know a handful of goalies or or whatever the last you know three years his numbers are better Mm -hmm. there's a great stat that for the last three years of the goalies that have started or appeared in 100 games or more nobody has a better save percentage than robin leonard not vasilevsky not tuka rast nobody he has the best save percentage of any of those goalies with a hundred appearances or more in the last three years. So in terms of his productivity, in terms of what he's done on the ice and having to fight against, you know, sort of the idea that he can't do it. uh, He's proven he can, he's proven that, you know, that that he's a number one goalie and and this is going to be his chance, you know, to carry a team and, and see how far he can go with them in the playoffs as well. Very excited to see how it turns out. And definitely we're, uh, we're cheering for Laner next year. Um, I want to move, we'll, we'll go to defense right now. And I guess we're heading into year two of the Alex Petrangelo Vegas Golden Knights marriage. He also, uh, I guess, underwhelmed offensively. If you were expecting him to go from St. Louis into Vegas and get that top power play role and dominate offensively, obviously the Knights paid him big money to bring in more than that offense. But for our purposes, for fantasy, I guess I'm just wondering if we have any reason to think he sees an expanded offensive role next season, or is it kind of the obvious answer of, no, Shea Theodore is the guy and he's sticking on that top unit and, and he's not giving it up. Well, I think, you know, maybe what I would say is I feel like the opportunities are there and he was given them last year. I think it's more a matter of just having the puck go in and just seeing the productivity elevate. I think we started to see it. And if you, you know, take his numbers and you extrapolate them out over an 82 game season and, you know, all that sort of stuff, they're not bad. They're, they're pretty consistent with, you know, what he's done, you know, in his career and, you know, during the season when we asked those types of questions, you know, about, you know, Alex Petrangelo and, and Pete DeBoer, what sort of things do you need to see more, you know, to get him out of the slump? Pete DeBoer's answer was always, 
you know, in terms of their internal analytics, that his his production in terms of scoring chances and high danger chances, all of those things he was creating at at the same rate that he was before. So I don't think there's any worry in terms of him, you know, getting those opportunities, creating, you know, being on a power play and all of that, or even, you know, like Shea Theodore stealing some of that thunder. I think it's just a matter of the puck going in for him, you know, maybe finding a pass here or two that the guys are able to finish their power play was awful last year, mm. and especially in the postseason. So if any of that improves and he's able to kind of, you know, get some of the residual effect of that, maybe pick up some secondary assists, you know, then, then all of a sudden the numbers look a little better. And then, you know, maybe the conversation changes a little bit around him. I would expect him. He looked so much more comfortable at the end of the year once he was healthy and then into the postseason. And and I would really expect him to to look even more comfortable and and take a step forward in terms of the production next season. It makes a lot of sense, and especially looking at those numbers where you know heading finishing up the regular season, he puts up nine points in ten games, and then he goes into the playoffs and he performs. Uh, he puts up twelve points in nineteen games. Like it, both both improvements on, on where he had been for most of the regular season. Um, I guess what it would, what it would seem then is that, I mean, probably you're, you're still, and we're, I guess I'm jumping ahead a bit here. I was going to ask about Shea Theodore. And I think that it's impossible to talk about one without talking about the other. So let's just get into it right now. I'm assuming that Shea Theodore is still the number one power play guy, but you're, you're just saying that, Petrangelo can be offensively uh, can can improve those offensive numbers and be a very fantasy relevant defenseman in his own right. Yeah, you know, and there's two sides to this a little bit too here, and and I, you know, you'll have to probably keep me on track because I'll ramble, <laughs> you know, a little bit. Well, you know, one, I think there's a there's a slight misconception a little bit on Alex Petrangelo the player and this idea that you know he's like some kind of sixty point you know, 70 point offensive performer, like he's never going to be Eric Carlson or John Carlson or, you know, Rome Yossi, like he's never been that his best years have been, you know, maybe in the, you know, 10 to 15 goal range and maybe flirting with like 50 points. Maybe he gets above 50 points, but like, that's, that's a great offensive season for him. So a little bit, I think, you know, as a fantasy guy, you have to temper your, or, or, or girl, female as well um you have to temper a little bit of the expectations you know for alex petrangelo and what are you expecting out of him you know so so there's that and then here's the other thing too i think there's a lot of questions just about what the golden knights power play is going to look like since we're Mm -hmm. kind of talking about that they went back and forth searching you know for for some sort of combination that worked whether it was shea theodore on the first unit or alex petrangelo on the first unit uh, even in you know, on rare occasion, we saw them together, um, you know, so depending on what they do this year, you know, with the power play and, and how they're, how they're utilized, how they're deployed. I mean, either way, Alex Petrangelo is going to get chances, you know, whether it's on the first unit or the second unit. And, and it's just going to, like I said, I think it's just going to be about, you know, the personnel and whether they're able to, you know, become more effective and find ways to click. It, is, is it just a simple matter of like Evgeny Dadanoff, you know, or, or, you know, personnel, or are they going to have to completely revamp, you know, how they, they've gone and, and go away from like that one, three, one that they, they seem to kind of favor and, and do something different, you know, that fits the personnel. Those are all questions that I think are unanswered. And I think once you sort of see, 
you know, preseason, maybe that sort of clears up a little bit more. But in terms of the opportunity on the power play, it, he and Shea Theodore are going to be running, you know, those two units respectively. It's, it's just going to be a question of who's going to be on the top unit. And so I do want to get into actually uh, talking about dad enough in a second, but um, I, I just want to ask you quickly about Theodore, uh, you know, paced for 65 points last year, that'd be a career high for him finishing top 10 in defensive scoring or defenseman scoring. It feels like at some points when you're watching him, that the sky is the limit that he could be, you know, one of those, the guys you mentioned, like an Eric Carlson, a John Carlson, like a, a possible 80 point defenseman. Do you think that, the ceiling is there for that. And, and I'm, you know, obviously that would have to be with what you're talking about, which is with a, a drastic improvement to the power play. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe some of that is the onus is going to be on him, you know, mm-hmm. to be a guy that, that improves it, you know, simple answer to your question is yes. And I'll, and I'll, I'll reveal a little bit of an anecdote here. I am a PHWA voter when they cut it down to a hundred last year. Um, I was one of the people that was fortunate enough to be chosen uh, from the West Division to vote on uh, those awards. So Hart Trophy, Norris Trophy, all those sorts of things. And I actually even wrote a story about this with about 10 games to go. Shea Theodore, if you looked at his numbers, was right there with Adam Fox and Hedman and like everybody. And for whatever reason, we we never figured this out. He never answered the question. It never came out entirely whether he was hurt or something. But but the last like eight, nine games, he just went into a complete scoring slump and it carried into the playoffs a little bit as well. Had he had he continued that pace, I think he would have got a lot more North consideration than he got and he finished sixth. He I couldn't justify putting him on my ballot. I'll reveal this because it's public. Um, we do like the all NHL team. And you have to, it's like first team, second team, third team. So you're obviously picking six total defensemen. Well, I have my top five from the Norris and Shea Theodore was my number six for that. I bring all this up because I feel like he was right there on the verge last year and then just kind of faded away in the last couple of weeks, you know, from the race. If he's able to continue that pace, do that for 82 games, uh, he's absolutely going to be there. There's all this conversation about him, you know, and Alex Petrangelo being on the Canadian Olympic team, you know, if and when the NHL players go to the Olympics. So certainly he's getting the recognition around the league that it takes, you know, to become a Norris candidate and all of those sorts of things. He's right there on the verge. And if he becomes, you know, a guy who takes that, that next step, if he gets into that 60 point, you know, range as a defenseman, I, I absolutely think you're talking about a guy that, you know, is going to be in the conversation with, you know, all of the rest of the top defensemen in the league. I can see it. And I, I think, you know, you look at the numbers this year, 15 power play points in 53 games. That's a 23 point a power play point pace, you know, and not the not the greatest, but like on the lower end of the the top power play producing defensemen for sure. And that's on the Vegas Golden Knights power play, which was terrible. So if if they're able to find a little bit of more consistency, um, you could see how he would he would vault up even, you know, I I he was 10 games away from having with 10 games left in the season. He's on pace for 70 points. That is what Adam Fox put up to your, to your point. So absolutely. He's, he's shown in, in massive samples that he can be an elite defenseman, but I guess it's just the question of whether, uh, 
whether they can put that together for a full season. Um, we talked about, uh, or, or you mentioned Evgeny Dadunov, and I guess when I look at the uh, Golden Knights uh, offseason, not many changes at the top of the lineup, but they were pretty busy uh, stacking up on depth at forward. And so they deal for Nolan Patrick, Dadunov, and Brett Howden. These guys haven't been especially fantasy relevant, uh, especially last year. Dadunov has, has been a, a pretty decent point scorer in the past. Do you think that there's a chance any of those three are able to crack the top six or to be fantasy relevant next year? Of the three, Dadunov would probably be the best bet. Um, we'll have to see. I think it'll be interesting going into training camp what Pete DeBoer decides to do with his lines. I think he's got a lot of options. The one thing that changes it, and I'm, you know, this might be on your your list of questions, so we, we might talk about this a little bit more, is Alex Tuck and his absence and mm-hmm. being on long term AR. And I do think that changes sort of the dynamic and the look of that lineup. But Pete DeBoer right now has some options. I mean, he has that misfit line with Carlson, Marcheseau, and Smith that, you know, for a while was the Knights' number one line and certainly has been, you know, one of their more consistent lines over the last four years, if not the most consistent. And, and you know, you wonder, like, okay, is the time now to break them up or or do you keep them together? You know, same thing with Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone. They've been so good together ever since, you know, the two of them were acquired. And then certainly with Chandler Stevenson in the in the in the pivot in between them and bringing that speed element, that's, that really seems to be kind of the missing link on what, you know, those two players needed to, to form that chemistry. Right. On a line. It, it's worked. And, and like, you know, if it's worked, like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if you're Pete DeBoer and you've looked and seen, you know, you know, we've struggled at times to score goals, especially in the playoffs, we have to do things, you know, maybe a little bit different way. And we've acquired somebody, you know, that they felt they've said Evgeny Dadunov was, you know, a driver of offense on a line. So, you know, I, I don't know if they see him as a top six guy. Potentially they do. Potentially they could break up, you know, some of that and put, you know, I don't know, maybe Riley Smith, you know, on a third line with somebody, you know, be a four checker and in sort of that Alex Tuck role w- without him. There's a lot of different ways that that Pete DeBoer could go with this. But, you know, in terms of track record, in terms of what, you know, they've done in the past, I mean, if the Golden Knights are able to get the Florida version of Evgeny Dadnov, who, you know, is a 60, you know, maybe even 70 point type player, then, then yeah, they, they could absolutely see him in, in, the, in the top six. I guess the one barrier there for him is that, uh, you know, in, in Florida, he ends up playing with, with Alex Barkov at center in Vegas in order to get with uh stone or Pacioretty or on the stone and Pacioretty line, you either need to be a center or they need to be split up. So I guess, do you expect, I guess it's hard to say for you, but do you see them being split up or do you see what, how do you see that, that partnership shaking out heading into next year? I mean, so I'm, so let me, I'll tell you a quick story too, just because I thought yeah, I think this is so funny and I, I don't know her name, but I at least want to like kind of shout her out um, from Twitter. So when Dadanov did his knee availability, he was asked two questions in Russian and I picked up the name, the name Shipashov and for night fans, Shipashov is like, this is like punchline. You know, because he played three games and he bolted, he goes back to Russia and, you know, all this sort of stuff. He's, he's like the, the 
you know, whenever you need a joke, whenever you need like a pull a reference, you know, for somebody, you know, some old or something, it's always Shippashov. And so like, you know, he's asked this question, you know, kind of like, you know, the dog ears go up like, whoa, 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 what did he ask? What did he ask? So we actually got somebody to go through and translate it. She speaks Russian. And what she actually said was the question was very similar to what you brought up, was that he played with elite center in Florida, in Barkov. And even in Russia, he played with elite center in Shippeshop. And how is he going to kind of work his way up the lineup, you know, with the Knights? Or does he expect to play with an elite center? Because, look, here's the problem. The Knights don't have that. It's the closest thing that they have to, you know, maybe you know, a bona fide number one center is William Carlson. And I don't think you could make that argument, you know, about him right now. They kind of have, you know, a bunch of number twos or one A's. Like Chandler Stevenson, as well as he's played with Stone and Pacioretty, like I don't think you can legitimately make the argument that he's a number one center. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's going to be sort of the mystery. Like, as much as the Knights and Kelly McCrimmon sell, you know, sold Dadnov as a driver you know, of offense on a line, like he's always played with a center that seems to, you know, be a playmaker and, and a setup guy. So I'm interested to see, you know, how do the Knights do that? Like if Nolan Patrick, you know, enough, can they just put him on the third line and have dad not be a guy who sort of gets his own or are they going to have to mix things up and maybe put him with William Carlson or, you know, put him with Chandler Stevenson and kind of see what works. It, it, it's going to be, you know, I, I hate to use the cliche, but that's why, you know, Pete DeBoer gets the big bucks. You know, he's going to earn his money this year in that regard. Yeah, it's uh, and it's interesting to see Vegas is kind of a team where when you slot in the players in the offseason to sort of where you think they're going to land, it's been pretty obvious for a while that uh, how those top two lines shake out. But it is really interesting to kind of see how how that could shake out next year. I know that um, as recently as last summer, a lot of folks had some high hopes for Cody Glass, who got traded away in the Nolan Patrick trade. Do you have any insight into why things went sideways with him in Vegas? Well, I think a little bit was injury and just, you know, sort of circumstance with with all that. So if you go back to what was his rookie year, which ended up being you know, the pandemic year, 1920, um, they sort of shoehorned him into the lineup. And and it's funny because George McPhee had kind of a, a, a quote around here that's, you know, sort of infamous about how they'd rather overcook prospects. And and it felt like they actually, to you know, continue the ana- analogy, they undercooked Cody Glass, that he actually needed more time. He probably needed a year, you know, in the AHL. And what happened was they, they sort of forced him into the lineup partly for like salary cap reasons and, and things like that. He was playing, you know, right wing. He wasn't really in his natural position. And then he ended up getting hurt. They never said this, but like, it's pretty obvious he tore his ACL. So he had major, major, you know, off surgery and he's rehabbing from that. And one of the things that he also tried to do, you know, going into what was last season was put on weight and he basically sort of overcorrected and he put on too much weight. And it took away some of his speed and it took away, you know, some of his quickness. And he just never really showed, you know, the ability to create offense at five on five last year. And I think the Knights started to worry, you know, that it was never really going to come for him. What's interesting is, is that they traded him for a guy from the same draft and they basically just sort of 
you know, it's a the, the famous, you know, Bob McKenzie, the trade is one for one. Like, and they they basically said, well, Cody Glass was the sixth pick in the in that 2017 draft, and Nolan Patrick was number two. Nolan Patrick's a better player. So why wouldn't we get the better player? And and it's a little reductive and you know, maybe a little simplistic to look at it that way. But, you know, I really just think the Knights saw an opportunity to, you know, give two guys who needed a change of scenery, you know, that and on top of everything else, Kelly McCrimmon is just, you know, he knew he he literally knew Nolan Patrick before he was born. I mean, Kelly McCrimmon played junior hockey with Nolan Patrick's dad, known him, you know, his entire adult life. They've been friends. Nolan Patrick played junior hockey with the Brandon Wheat Kings when Kelly McCrimmon was the coach and the owner and later the general manager. So there's just a certain familiarity there that, you know, I think when the opportunity, you know, really presented itself that they just felt like Nolan Patrick, if he hits his ceiling, is an, is a better prospect and a better player than Cody Glass. It's really interesting to hear Cody Glass put in the same box as Nolan Patrick um, as a guy who essentially needs to be rebuilt because we kind of had accepted Nolan Patrick was in that in that uh, class for for a couple seasons now. But I I think that folks are not really uh, I, I think there are a lot of folks who are surprised to see Cody Glass get shipped off for for Nolan Patrick just because they've seen less of him and he had a lower profile. So maybe there was. Uh, maybe there was just like less understanding that that things had soured as quickly as they had in Vegas. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, Pete DeBoer had some pretty strong comments uh, in his exit interview at the end of the season and, you know, all sort of used this phrase. He, I mean, he essentially subtweeted Cody Glass. Mm. He never really, he never mentioned him by name, but it was pretty obvious who he was talking about uh, with some of the comments in terms of they felt like they gave young players an opportunity and they either just didn't grab it, uh, weren't ready for it and, or hopefully would be ready, you know, in September. And, and I really think, you know, Pete DeBoer sort of, you know, maybe led the charge a little bit on, you know, souring on Cody glass. Um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know what, actually, maybe I should take that back. Uh, that that's probably not, not entirely fair, but, but so I, I will say this though, because I am on record as saying that I don't really like the trade. And, and I think it's interesting in what you mentioned. And, and I think it's a great point about both of them needing to be rebuilt. Where, where I think the difference is, is Nolan Patrick needs to be rebuilt physically. That, that he has, you know, what he revealed essentially was a couple of years ago that he had a concussion. And that that migraine disorder was a result of the concussion. And he feels a little bit better. Obviously, he played last year. His health was, you know, up to, to 100% and he was cleared. But he mentioned himself in his exit interview in Philadelphia that early in the season. He was tentative. It was still in the back of his mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just think he's somebody physically who, if you go back to 13 or 14 years old, you go back to juniors, has always had injury problems and and you look at Cody Glass and you say okay well maybe the ceiling is a little lower than we originally projected but you know Cody Glass is still on the ascendancy and he's still you know working his way back from major surgery you know you figure he's going to get his body into the right spot it it just feels like if i'm looking at this just from a scouting perspective it feels like Cody Glass has a 
better chance to get to his ceiling, even if it's lower than Nolan Patrick does right now, just because of the physical obstacles that Patrick has to overcome. I, yeah, I think that that's bang on. And I mean, we'll obviously see this is set up to be a pretty big prove it year for both players, but uh, I would be, I would be more optimistic about, I guess, about Cody glass hitting that mid six center, the center spot long-term, but that's uh that's something we'll be watching closely. Uh, we did talk about Pacioretty and stone a little while ago, and I, I, I want to move on to them and, and sort of talk about the fact that Pacioretty at, at the age of 32 is 13th NHL year has his first point per game season. Uh, Captain Mark stone his line mate posts his career best point pace. Both of them shoot way higher than their career average shooting percentage and their on-ice shooting percentages were both the highest of their careers. Do you think that they can meet those extremely high expectations that they established for themselves last year? Or is it more realistic to expect, you know, yeah, they're superstars, but maybe they don't quite hit those same heights. Yeah. You know, so maybe Pacioretty is not like a point per game player Mm -hmm. like he was last year, but I think he's proven over the last couple of years, especially with Stone, when when they're all healthy, that he can he can produce. And I think, you know, one of the things that Pete DeBoer talked a lot about, you know, at the end of the year and pointed out, you know, several times was he and he uses this phrase a lot about Max Pacioretty added layers to his game. And and I think, you know, anybody that kind of knows Pacioretty from Montreal and sort of the criticism, you know, about him was he didn't go to the hard areas. You know, the ice, he wanted to score goals from the perimeter and just kind of, you know, rock and fire basically and rely on his shot. And and I think what Pete DeBoer has done and and probably deserves some credit for is is getting somebody at that stage of his career who's had that much success or as much success as Max Max Pacioretty has to realize that he's got to be able to do a couple different things and, and figuring out sort of the happy medium. You know, look, Max Patrick is never going to be a guy who's going to stand in front of the net and take a pounding and score a bunch of like ugly, greasy goals and get tips and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But if he can get one or two more, if he can do it a little bit more often, if he can go to some, you know, maybe some different areas and, and try to score, you know, a little bit different way, if he can be a little bit more effective on a power play than he had, but all those sorts of things. And I, I think that's where, you know, the improvement and why we've seen you know, the production rise, you know, from Max Pacioretty. I don't think that's going to go away. I think as long as he's healthy and he's, you know, getting the ice timing and getting, you know, the chances with, you know, the players that he's going to skate with, you know, he can produce. Obviously, at some point, the age is going to kick in. But, you know, he's got that shot and that release. And as long as he's able to do that, you know, he's going to be a guy that over an 82 game season is going to threaten 30 goals, if not surpass. Yeah. He's yeah. and the shot is, is still very much there. It's kind of wild to, to watch Pacioretty last year and, and just see how dominant he was offensively when, you know, the year after the trade to Vegas, uh, I think Habs fans were already doing a victory lap saying, you know, the, the trade happened and it's like, wow, they got, they got Pacioretty for nothing. And then he kind of has a, a stumbling block in 2018, 19, uh, everybody's in Montreal is sort of celebrating Ryan or Nick Suzuki, who looks, you know, don't get me wrong, looks like a great player. But I think it's very clear after after year three of this trade that both teams got what they were hoping for in this deal. Yeah, yeah, and they, that was sort of a fun storyline in the postseason to be able to write about. And 
you know, kind of examine as, as that series went along. Uh, you know, certainly in that series, Nick Suzuki got the better of it and, you know, kind of haunted the Knights a little bit in that sense. And, you know, I think he probably came away with a with a pretty big smile on his face, you know, feeling like he proved himself. But yeah, yeah, to your point, I think it's one of those rare trades where both teams probably won. And both teams, you know, it took a little bit for the Knights to, you know, get what they expected out of Max Pacioretty. I think he struggled a little bit, you know, that first year. You know, it was funny. The second year, he he made the all-star team. And he was voted by the PHWA. It was like he finished third in kind of like a, like a comeback player of the year sort of vote. And I remember asking him about him, you know, kind of being like, hey, what do you think about this? And he's like... Well, I don't really know. Like, what did I come back from? Like, I had 22 goals a year before. Like, that's not bad, you know, but mm-hmm. it just speaks to the bar that he set that, you know, a 22 goal, you know, 40 point season by Max Pacioretty is, you know, a huge step back and he has to kind of come back from that. So, you know, yeah, certainly the last couple of years, the Knights have benefited, you know, from, you know, his step forward. And, you know, I think, you know, he's been one of the more consistent guys. It's just sort of funny, like, like I said, where, where you know the bar that he set for himself, and you know what, twenty-two goals, and everybody kind of looks at that like, you know, uh, you, know you stink, bro. What's your problem? Yeah, it's uh, it's see, that I guess it's it's hard at the top. People have have yeah. high hopes for you, absolutely. Um, but well, now I'm for them, and they put a you know they put a lot you know you know they give him a big contract and you know, put him up there first line right away. And he was the guy that was supposed to replace basically the production for James Neal. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of expectation for him. He did, really didn't live up to it that first year. I think, I think it's absolutely fair to point that out. Yeah. And, and, and so I mentioned, uh, or I, I asked about Mark Stone as well. I'm assuming the fact that you, you focused on Pacioretty here indicates that you're, you're not too concerned about Mark Stone's production next year. Oh, uh, not at all. As long as he's <laughs> healthy. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting sort of his, his, his development, his progression, you know, as a player, sort of his evolution a little bit, you know, it's, you mentioned like the shooting percentage. It's funny because, you know, one of the questions and one of the things I've always wondered and that, you know, he's been asked about or whatever is like, why don't you shoot more? Like he's always mm. had a good, you know, pretty good shooting percentage, but I think he's really savvy and, and sort of understands, you know, when not to just throw a puck on net and sort of, you know, waste it. I don't think he's a guy who's too worried about like Corsi and stuff like that, where he's just going to, you know, throw it from from 50 feet away and just try to you know get rubber on net like he if he's shooting it because you know he knows he's got a good scoring chance but but one of the things that that's been interesting is is just sort of seeing him you know develop as a playmaker he was obviously really good at that you know in ottawa but you know he's just he he just drives offense in in such a different way than than most guys it it really is fun and and like subtle to watch it's like you you really have to kind of kind of keep an eye on it and know what you're looking for. And I don't, I don't want to sound condescending, but like he, he's just such a different star player in that way. You know, I, there, there's a woman who emails me a lot and we go back and forth and, you know, she's not a huge stone fan. And I think she started, started to come around last year, it, but it, but it's because he's not a guy that just takes the puck and skates through three guys and, and scores a goal. You know, he doesn't show up on the highlights and, and things like that, you know, that way when he does, it's because, you know, you see expressive Mark Stone and, and the awesome gifts and everything like that, you know, or, you know, whatever. But, it, you know, his game, when you when you see it, you just really come to appreciate it. 
It's the effort plays with him. And it's, it's the, it's the defensive back checks where he just makes the smart play and, and rips the puck off somebody in the neutral zone. And then he has a breakaway. It may, you know, just look like your average breakaway goal to somebody and like, Oh, he's, he must be fast or whatever. No, he's just an incredibly gifted uh, and, and, and savvy player who is, I think must be the smartest player on the, on the ice 99% of the time. Yeah, when they, when they talk about hockey IQ, it's hard to like quantify it or or even mm-hmm. like really like you know point it out. But you really do see it with him. And here's the other, just real quickly, like the other point with him too. I think that has to be that has to be made is how well and and how quickly he seemed to fit in as a captain and and really take on that role. He's got his own sort of leadership style, and obviously he's he's vocal on the ice and he's expressive, and you you know you see sort of the you know the you know you see how demonstrative he is and, and really wears it on his sleeve, and I mean that in a positive way, you know. But there were so many things last year in terms of the leadership, and and you know we weren't in the locker room, but you kind of heard it from the players, and you saw and and you heard how he dealt with the media, and and it really just seemed to suit him. I'm really big on like certain guys are captains and certain guys aren't. And and he really is a captain. And I, I think it was one of the better moves that that organization could have made. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the second line in Vegas has been, you know, four full seasons now of Riley Smith, William Carlson and Jonathan Marshall. So, and after that really, uh, incredible uh, first season in Vegas. They've really sort of settled into being these 55 to 60 point guys. Uh, Riley Smith obviously had a, had a tough season last year. Do you, uh, do you, are you, I don't know if this is maybe just a yes or no question, um, but basically do you see them as set them and forget them? Like these guys are going to put up 55 to 65 points, or do you think that there's a sort of a great, a possibility for an uptick or a significant downtick from, from any of these folks? I think maybe all of the above, to be quite honest, right. I, I, guess I know it's a terrible answer. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people that's really big on like track record, you mm-hmm. know, like, like if you've proven it and you've shown it, like, you know, you kind of are who you are and, and, and that's not a bad thing. You know, and I think, like you said, for the most part, I, I feel like maybe that first year was the uptick. I feel like that was maybe a little bit of the aberration. They've Definitely. consistently been, and like you said, in that, you know, 50, 55, maybe even flirting to 60 point range. And I think that, that yeah, you can probably expect that, you know, maybe, maybe if they're together, maybe things click, you know, maybe Mark Jusson gets a few more assists, maybe because, you know, Riley Smith has a better year than he did last year or something like that. But I yeah. think for the most part, yeah, it does feel a little bit like set it and forget it. Like, you know what you're going to get from them. You know, you, you can pretty much pencil it in and, and rely on it and, and they're going to deliver. And so when we look at this team, we, we talked about how important it's going to be for some of these guys to get on that top power play unit and for it to start producing if if I put you on the spot and made you predict sort of how it shakes out this year, what do you think is a is a top power play that that could find success for Vegas? I mean, I would expect you know you'd have Pacioretty and Stone at least to start with. I think you know Dadanov could get a look. And I think you know here's one of the things, and I don't I haven't really studied his game. One of the things that I've heard about him is that he's really good in the bumper spot on the power play. So if listeners aren't super familiar with that. 
that's like the middle spot kind of in the in the slot um you know in the in the power play it's the spot the braden point spot it yeah it's the, yeah, it's the, the bergeron spot too um those two guys right. are, are probably the best at it bergeron certainly i think made it famous but you know data from what i understand and have been told and certainly from people that i rely on is good in that spot the Knights have, have never had anybody that's been in a threat there. As long as they've used that formation, it's just been a dead zone. And the guy who plays there never seems to get a grasp on, you know, what to do with the puck, whether it's, you know, moving it, shooting it, just whatever. They don't seem to have that threat there. If Dadanov is a guy that all of a sudden they can plug into that bumper spot, you know, on that top line and he can play off like Mark Stone, you know, working off the goal line and Pacioretty can continue to be a guy that works in the, in the right face-off circle, you know, now you're, now you got something. And then, you know, maybe you've got March. So, you know, on the left flank, and then maybe you've got a second unit where you've got, you know, Riley Smith and William Carlson, um, you know, some other guys like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I'm drawing this up, you know, that's probably, if I'm going to go four forwards, this is just me. I I'm putting Shea Theodore with March. So Dadanoff, uh, stone. Am I missing somebody? I think you uh, you didn't say that. Did you say that enough? Yeah. So yeah. Theodore. Okay. Yeah. Theodore. Yeah, you got it. Eddie Stone. Those are right. my five. Okay. Yeah. And I I think that besides that enough, those are the clear four best players uh, to put on that top unit. I think that fit is going to go a long way and, and it'll be really interesting to see how he does fit in that bumper spot because there's, you know, it's, it's always, it's never made sense for this team to be, or it, it didn't make sense certainly last year by the time that you had uh, Pacioretty and Stone established in Vegas for, for them to not have any and, and say Theodore at the top of his game. It hasn't made sense since then to, to have this lackluster of a power play. Yeah, they were decent the first year, but and even Pete DeBoer pointing this out, like it's been an ongoing issue. I mean, this is like a three year problem. And, you know, they, they looked at it two years ago. And, you know, it wasn't really working and they tried to do some things and then they went into, you know, last off season and had a new coach running it and tried to do a whole bunch of different things. As Pete DeBoer said, they put some new eyes on it and they had all the same problems. So it kind of tells you like maybe there's something personnel wise or just like formation wise or just, you know, something that, that just doesn't, doesn't seem right about it that, you know, I, I know they made. A, they made a big point this off season that all of their moves and like their concentration was going to be on improving that power play, you know, data off and, and probably just even some schematic things too, that they're looking at, you know, even right now that they probably plan to implement going into a training camp. And uh, you mentioned him earlier. I got to, I have to bring him up even though, uh, he, we're not going to see him until January. Alex Tuck, maybe one of my, maybe my favorite player to watch in. Uh, no, I can't say that. There's too many other. He's one of my favorite, uh, I'd say middle six players in the league because he's one of those guys when, when you're watching him, he looks like uh, at sometimes he looks like he should be carrying uh his own scoring line and then other times you put him on the third line and he's turning you know a couple of guys who would be 25 point guys into usable options and so Alex Tuck I think is just just such an interesting player to me um do you uh 
do you think he's destined to sort of, because he's so adept at playing anywhere in the lineup, do you think he's just destined to always sort of have undependable deployment? Or do you think there's an outcome here where we see him as one of the Knights, like go to number, like top unit forwards? So it's hard to answer because I feel like this would have been the year where maybe if you're pizza mm. boy and you're like, we just talked about a few minutes ago and like, you know, having the options and maybe juggling some line combinations, maybe breaking up some people and things like that. I think not having Alex Tuck takes away a lot of that flexibility. I feel like he was on the verge and pretty much played his way into like a top six role. He's proven, I think, that he's a top six guy and there just really wasn't room for him unless mm-hmm. you kind of juggle some things around. And, you know, unless there was a trade, unless there was a move, you know, what whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, you know, now he's, now he's going to be, you know, out of the lineup, you know, probably until, you know, the end of February, they were talking about like six months. And if they're going to have the Olympic break, it probably just makes, you know, sense for him not to come back at the start of February and just, you know, sit out all the way through the break and and come back at the end of that. So I, I do think it just changes sort of the dynamic of the team. I don't know. Like, this is one of the questions, and, and this might be something that you asked me at the end, and I don't know if I'm spoiling it. I apologize if I am. But, like, if, if anybody were to ask me, like, do I think they're better now? If With Alex Tuck out of the lineup on long-term IR, I don't, I don't think you can make the, the argument that they are better. Um, going forward, I mean, we'll see. I think a lot of it's going to be independent on is he going to fully recover from this injury? Is it going to hamper him? I mean, it's a shoulder. So you're talking about a guy who basically is bumper, you know, is he going to have it pop out or whatever the issue is every time he takes a, you know, a hit, you know, is it going to be a recurring problem for him for the rest of his career? You hope not. You hope that this surgery is, is, you know, what's going to fix it and prevent that from happening. But, you know, all of a sudden it, it adds a different question to, to his long-term future. Uh, and maybe it changes, you know, sort of the long-term outlook. But I think as long as he's in Vegas, he's a guy that can and probably will down the road play in the top six. I sure hope so. And, you know, you worry a little bit about him because he's such a he's such a banger out there. He, he can play. He plays with an edge. So you could see that sort of wearing on a guy like him. But it's wild to see that he's still just 25 years old. It feels like he's been in the league forever. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and certainly it's funny just to see him, you know, kind of grow up and you see the maturity. of I mean, like he's their player up for uh for the NHLPA and, you know, he's really involved in a lot of those things. You, you know, he's, he's a guy who's really good with the media and, you know, not afraid to, you know, be the guy who will answer some of the harder questions, you know, that, that, you know, especially in the last year and a half, you know, with the pandemic and everything that, that we faced, he was certainly a guy that, that was willing to be a spokesperson, you know, for that locker room and things like that. Well, one of the things on the ice though, that's just so fun last year was it seemed like that coaching staff just said, go hunt the puck, like go on the back check, wherever that puck goes, you find it. And and it was really fun to just watch him just create havoc on the back check and everybody sort of fill in the gaps and the lanes, you know, off of what he did. And he was such a bother and he created so many problems for other teams, you know, with his speed and ability to just, you know, get back into that neutral zone and, and just really, you know, kill plays off before they even happen. It, it's a it's a unique talent that he has with his speed that the coaching staff was finally really able to to, you know, kind of exploit and take advantage of. 
Yeah, and he's just one of those guys. He's a matchup pro. Anyway, I could talk about Alex Tuck all night, and <laughs> that's why I had to put him at the end because I didn't want to do that to uh, to our listeners. Um, I do want to talk about prospects before we hop off, and yeah. I think when you're looking at uh, Vegas, it's a pretty clear top tier. It's Peyton Krebs, good uh, good old Okotoks boy. Uh, the top of the prospect rankings, probably since they took him in the first round back in 2019, uh, he's battled a bunch of injuries since. Do you think this is the year he can crack the lineup with the uh, big club? Or if he does, do you think that he's a guy who could potentially solve some of their uh, their center woes? Okay, so I really apologize. You cut out for whatever reason. I, oh. I think Lost you for a second. No worries. So, was that about Peyton Krebs? Yeah, let me let me just get. I'll give you. I'll give you the rundown just one more time. Okay. I apologize for that. Sorry. It's no worries at all. It, uh, I mean, one edit point is uh, is no <laughs> problem. Um, so I did finally. I do want to chat prospects before we we hop out of here. And I think when you look at Vegas, it's a pretty clear top tier. Peyton Krebs, uh, good old boy from Okotoks. He's been the top of the Knights prospect rankings. Since they took him basically back in 2019, he has had some injury issues, um, but this is kind of the year where folks are starting to say, all right, is is this the year where he can crack the lineup? Do you think this is a, do you think he makes the team this year? And, and if so, do you think he gets a chance in the top six as a center? So top six, I think is maybe a little tough to project and maybe a little early for him. Um, I, I think they're probably set at least you know, right now, like going into it, you figure Carlson and, and Stevenson are going to be hard to to bump out of that spot. I mean, maybe if you're going to put him on the roster, I think there's an argument to be made for, you know, maybe protecting him, insulating him a little bit and trying him between Pacioretty and Stone and seeing mm. if that works. You know, one of the things I think long term, I'm curious to see what Peyton Krebs is like position wise. Because as much as he's played center, I think maybe wing is actually the position that he's going to end up at here long term. So, you know, we'll see in terms of the center, you know, where he where he ends up and, and how he projects. I think right now, you know, with Nolan Patrick, if he's healthy, with Nicholas Waugh, with Brett Howden being able to to do that, even somebody like down the, the way down in the organization a little bit, like Patrick Brown. Pete DeBoer loves Patrick Brown and is very willing to put him, you know, on a fourth line, you know, at center if he needs to. And then obviously that bumps, you know, some other guys around. So, you know, salary cap wise and things like that, they're going to need at some point here's some entry level contracts just to make some of this all work. I, I don't know if that means Peyton Krebs, you know, is, is on this team. And then if they have to make some moves, you know, sort of to accommodate that, I think a lot of, you know, training camp in the preseason, you know, we'll sort some of that out, but he's right there. He's really, really, really close. And if he doesn't make this team, you know, right away coming out of training camp and he goes down to the AHL and plays for Henderson, I can absolutely see a scenario where he's back up, you know, during the year. And at some point he's a mainstay in that lineup. Well, especially if they run into injury issues at center, if, if, if yeah. Stevenson goes down or if, uh, if Carlson goes down, I guess Marcia has, has played center in the past, but um, it, I don't know if he has since he arrived in Vegas actually, but yeah, it's uh it's, it's tough to see who would fill the lineup without those, those two uh, in the top six center roles, because I mean, there's a reason why they're there. It's that there's not a, not a ton of options for them uh, for, for the Knights at center. 
Right. And, and, and to that point, they really just don't have a prospect really other than Peyton Krebs that is sort of built for being a top six guy. Mm-hmm. You know, like like he I mean, if a top six guy were to go out like you could put Nicholas Waugh there, I guess, you know, maybe you could slide Nolan Patrick up or something like that. But Peyton Krebs is really a guy who probably needs and should be playing in the top six as opposed to putting him in, you know, more of like a grinding role or something like that on the fourth line. So, so really, yeah, they, they wouldn't have a whole lot of options, you know, at the center spot if one of those two guys, you know, were to go out for any reason. And and I do think Peyton Krebs would be something that they would have to look at, you know, for that reason. And so you, you sort of spoiled my last question here, but that's okay. I forgive you. Um, <laughs> give it to me straight though. I guess, are there any other Knights prospects that fantasy players should be watching out for, uh, you know, for my purposes this year, but we, we do have dynasty players as well who are listening. And so anybody who longer term you think could be an impact player in the league. Yeah. I mean, I think Jack Dugan is probably the one guy who really jumps out just being, you know, on the younger side of things at 23, um, mm-hmm. but produced pretty well in the AHL last year. Uh, I think he was second in rookie scoring. He was second on the on the Silver Knights uh, in scoring overall. And for a guy who jumped, you know, straight from college, you know, first year, you know, pro, I, I think it was a good a good first step for him. I think he's a guy that's going to get a long look in training camp, and you know, maybe is somebody that that cracks you know a third line depending on what he does in the preseason especially with Alex Tuck you know out of the lineup i think you know Krebs you know Jack Dugan maybe somebody like Lucas Elvinus i i think he's maybe a little mm-hmm. further away but but definitely Dugan jumps out and then i'll get you know one other rookie on defense and in terms of the fantasy i don't know how much impact he'll have and even long term i don't know that he's a real offensive guy but you know their top prospect back there is a guy named Caden Korzak, and and I think he's really close as well. There there was a lot of talk last year that he was going to make his NHL debut, and there were some things you know that that sort of happened off the ice in terms of like the COVID testing and some some stuff popped up that that prevented that from happening, and then and then all the stuff happened where he had to go back to his junior team because of the NHL CHL agreement and all that sort of stuff. But he's right there as well, and, and he might be a guy who makes, you know, his NHL de- debut this well or this year as well. So, you know, those are probably the the two, you know, names that that would jump out at least right away. You know, dynasty guys certainly first round picks. You know, Brendan Brisson is at Michigan with that ultra talented team, uh, and led the team in goals last year. Was tied with, uh, I think it was Matty Veneers, uh with ten goals last year in in a twenty four game college season. So that's not bad. Uh, he would be somebody to watch. And then just real quick from their draft this past year, I'm really, really intrigued actually by their second round pick, who is Daniil Cheka, who's a defenseman. He's Russian. He plays in the OHL for Guelph. And he won a title there. He's won a bunch of medals and things internationally with Russia. Every level he's been at, he just seems to win. Last year, he went back to Russia and you know didn't really play all that well because the OHL you know, obviously didn't have its season. So I think he's somebody to keep an eye on. He's expected to go back with Guelph this year. And depending on how he does, you know, maybe long-term, he's a guy that you could start, you know, putting in a top 10 list and and projecting as somebody that, you know, the Knights, you know, in their system, you know, might have something, uh, 
might have a little bit of a diamond in the rough, I guess you could say. Excellent. David, thank you so much. Uh, you've answered all my questions and you especially, I think, gave the uh, the Dynasty fans a, a, a lot extra there at the end. Um, where can folks find your work? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity. I love chatting any uh, anytime about this stuff. It's fun. So uh, Twitter is probably the best way, which is uh, David Shane, L-V-R-J. So David and then S-C-H-O-E-N. LVRJ, which stands for Las Vegas Review Journal. So that's the Twitter handle. And then uh, if you ever go on uh, reviewjournal.com uh, with the Golden Knights section, you can read you know, all of my work, my colleague Ben Goats, uh, also a bunch of stuff. And ha- that'll have an email and a, and a phone number as well. The phone number is terrible. I never check my voicemail, so don't ever call me. doesn't do any good for anybody. But, uh, but yeah, I'm always... Uh, I'm always up for, for trying to uh, interact with folks and, you know, certainly, you know, any, any conversation that that's worth having. I'm always, uh, I'm always there for, for a little debate and a little fun. Excellent, David. You, uh, we really appreciate you being on the show and uh, you've given folks a lot of inside info on the, the Vegas Golden Knights. So we really appreciate you coming back and uh, being a part of the, uh, the 32 Beat series for us again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you reaching out and, uh, and you let me do this. It's fun. All right. Great job, Ben. And thank you so much again to David Schoen for coming on Keeping Carlson to talk about the Vegas Golden Knights. If you want to follow David's work, which I'm sure you do, you got to follow him on Twitter at David Schoen, LVRJ. Or you can read his articles at the Las Vegas Review Journal. That's what the LVRJ stands for. And we'll link to that in the show notes to get right to all of his articles. So yeah, Vegas, will they ever reach the heights of their expansion season? The window's open. They just got to walk through it, so this will be a big year for them. All right, so thanks so much for listening to our show. Thanks for subscribing to Keeping Carlson. If you're not subscribed to Keeping Carlson, you just wanted to come listen to this show about Vegas, I highly recommend you subscribe because we've got a ton of content coming your way very, very soon, including a show this Sunday where Brian and I are going to be going over some of our best and worst projections from last season. We're looking forward now. It's preseason time, so we're starting to ramp up here over at Keeping Carlson HQ. Uh, So just make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson wherever you listen to your podcast, and you'll get all the great content to get you ready for this upcoming fantasy season and again if you really want to have an edge in your leagues consider becoming a patron of keeping carlson at keepingcarlson.com slash patron and if you want to join the ultimate league once you are a patron make sure to register for the keeping carlson ultimate patron fantasy league if you're already a patron but you haven't registered for the couple yet make sure to do so before the september 13th deadline remember even if you played last year you still got to register you got to let us know that you're planning to come back but okay with that i am ready to let us all go home so let's cue the outro music i'll go ahead and read you the credits which are that the keeping carlson fantasy hockey podcast is supported by our patrons and presented by DauberHockey.com. Outro music by Pat Roach and logo art by BrandonWeeb.com. And this episode was, of course, researched by Ben. And I can't tell you what he did to research, but I can tell you that it featured David Schoen once again from the Las Vegas Review Journal. And you can follow David at at David Schoen, L-V-R-J, on Twitter. So to the patrons, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And to everyone else, we'll be back at you with, I think, maybe another Beat Writer episode this week, but definitely another main episode coming on Sunday night. So until then, just remember to do your best to make it so fantasy hockey is for everyone.